some events in a nation are so impactful, they're so significant that we, they so define who the nation is that we memorialize them. So like for an example, for the United States, so we have the 4th of July or Independence Day, the day presumably the Declaration of Independence was written. And uh, that not only defined our freedoms that we desired as a nation, but uh, it also resulted in many of our people sacrificing their lives to fight for freedom and to uh, um, come out from under the oppression that, that we were experiencing as, as a people back in those days. The Passover for the people of Israel is that same kind of thing. It's a memorialized uh, recognition of the sacrifice that God provided for them to be set free from their oppression and to, uh, they could be free from their oppression and become his people. So through Moses, God has brought nine plagues on Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And that's really kind of him to do that, nine plagues. He could have just taken them down in one fell swoop. He could have just killed Pharaoh, or he could have blasted him with one big plague and been done with it. But he gave him nine opportunities to, to see it his way. And so we come up to the 10th plague, and we saw that toward the end of last week's message, uh, that uh, Pharaoh is was told by Moses that what's going to happen now, and you still have the chance to change this, but is you're going to, uh, the God is going to come into your country, as he has been, and he's going to um, kill everyone of your firstborn, from, from, the, from your household all the way down to the animals. So the firstborn are going to be killed in every one of your households. And so uh, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He still refuses to let people go. And um, so that's a problem for Egypt. And Moses, uh, God tells Moses then in chapter 12 of Exodus what Israel needs to do in order that they don't experience the same judgment. So that's what the Passover is about. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into chapter 12. Father, we need your help, I need your help, to make clear your word, to understand how it applies to us, to see and be amazed at how you, your, your judgments are awful and terrible and fearful, and your grace and mercy are great. So may we see that in the glory of your redemptive plan this morning. May your word have its way in our hearts. Help me to make it clear in the way I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's chapter 12, verses 1 to 28, and I'm going to read chunks at a time, and, and we'll make comments about what's going on. So what we see in the first uh, six verses of chapter 12 is this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So this is uh, the, the Lord makes the 
this month, the month of Israel's exodus, the beginning of a, of a year for them. So that's um, defined, your, your new beginning is the, is the exodus. The Lord instructs Israel as to how they are to remember his deliverance of them before it happens. So the, the deliverance has not happened yet, and, and, and God's saying, here's how you're going to remember what has not yet happened. Just as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper before he went to the cross for our, our deliverance from sin. And as they're being birthed as a new nation, the way God redeems them is key to their identity. So this is very fundamental to their identity as, as, a, as a nation and as a people. The timing of the new year marks their origin as a people. So they're, they're really coming together as a nation. They're, they're being formed as a new nation. Also, this is the first time he refers to them as a congregation. So they are um, becoming the people of God. They're being freed to be God's people. Every household is to select a lamb on the 10th day of the month. And if your family is too small to eat a whole lamb, because you're supposed to eat the whole thing. If your family is too small, then you can share it with your neighbor. You can split a lamb. Hey, you want to split a lamb? So they can do that. The lamb had to be without blemish, had to be perfect lamb. A, a year-old male can be a sheep or a goat. They're to keep watch over it. They're to care for it to make sure that nothing happens to it to disqualify it from being um, a, a candidate for the Passover lamb. So they're to keep a careful eye on it. And then the, on the 14th, they, they kill it. The whole congregation of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. So obviously a, a lamb can't really actually substitute for a human it was symbolic of, of a true uh, substitute sacrifice that was coming, and that's Jesus. Jesus fulfills the Passover lamb. He is the one whom, by whom God frees people from slavery to sin to make them become his people. John the Baptist declared this about Jesus even before Jesus went to the cross. He sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I wonder what people thought about that. I mean, but John the Baptist, at least he knew enough to say this is who Jesus is when he first sees him coming. That Christ would come at the, as the Lamb of God to redeem us was God's plan from before the world began. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter writes, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Sounds kind of familiar. He was foreknown or foreordained before the foundation of the world. So, so this wasn't God's afterthought. This was God's plan all along. From before the world began, he, the Father and Son had already agreed that the Son would come as, and become, as it were, the Lamb of God. In fact, so central is Jesus' identity as the Lamb of God that in Revelation chapter 5, you have um, the heavenly beings, the, the, they're called elders and he living creatures that are there. They're praising Jesus and they're calling him the, the Lamb slain. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. So this carries all the way forward into the end of human history and the beginning of, of, of the kingdom. Uh, he still recognizes the Lamb that was slain. He's still called that. So this is very central to God's plan. And it's just beginning here with Israel. Then we get to verses 7 through 13. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they, they eat. 
lintel is the top piece. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So cover your door frames with blood. Don't you do that. That's for them. Eat all the meat that night, roasted with unleavened, that's unfermented or yeastless bread, and bitter herbs. <clears throat> Basically, fast food. you got to have fast food because you got to be ready to go quickly. Bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of their oppression and their slavery. Um, don't, don't eat it raw or boiled, the lamb, but roasted because that's the quickest way to, to, to cook it. And don't leave any of it, don't, no leftovers. Because it's the sacrifice, the whole sacrifice is for your redemption. It's not for, for barbecue. And he said the, the way you should eat it is this way. Your belt fastened so your, your, your uh, robe is pulled up and in, in, in your belt so you're ready to run. Sandals on, so typically they had the sandals off in the house. And staff in hand, they typically don't carry their staffs around the house. So you're ready to take off. Thou shalt wolf down thy food in haste with urgency. So the posture of their eating only fast food and all of that was because they're, they're taking off on a pilgrim's lifestyle headed for the promised land. They're trusting God to provide for them and God to see them through the hazards of, of traveling to the promised land. And they're, they're, pure, they're, they're pilgrims. They, they're not in their homeland yet. It's the Lord's Passover, he says. It's Yahweh, so God's name is Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh determines the, the way of deliverance. It's according to his plan. Even more than the Passover being significant for Israel's deliverance, and that was important, and even more than uh, its impact to Pharaoh, was it's, God's, it's about God's will being done for his glory. So this is the Lord's Passover. This isn't some superstitious thing. It's God saying, this is how you will be redeemed. This is how you will be safe. God is executing the final judgment on Egypt just as he warned. He is judging the false gods of Egypt. He says that. In fact, the Lord has already shown his power over Pharaoh and the non-gods. And that, that really is his judgment, actually. His judgment is showing these gods you put your trust in, what good were they against my plagues? Hint, hint, there are no gods. They're, they're just non-gods. So God has shown that uh, he, is, he alone is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He's, he's the God of the, all the earth and all the nations, not just Israel. And that's been his main purpose. And he says the blood will be a sign that the Lord has provided for their protection by a substitutionary sacrifice. So it's a sign. 
It marks them out as belonging to the Lord. The Lord has already shown he can make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. So he didn't really need it. Like, if, In order for me to tell the difference between you and Egyptians, you got to put blood on your door. He didn't really need it for his sake, but it was their faith expression was putting blood on the door. So they're, they're acknowledging, I accept this is God's provision for my protection from the coming judgment. I accept this, this, the lamb as my substitute that, that the Lord has provided for me. He's teaching them also that their deliverance and protection from destruction requires a God-appointed, God-approved substitutionary sacrifice of a life. The blood is a sign that their faith in, in, in God's provision, so he will pass over them based upon their faith in, in his way. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 that, that by faith Moses and, and all the Israelites, but he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So this is a faith act. It's not a, again, it's not a superstitious thing. It's not a pagan practice. It's an act of faith. And, and God continues throughout Israel's, um, as he continues to provide for them ways that they celebrate and, and symbolize his way of relating to them. Uh, it, it always involves blood. So they blood every day, blood for all their holidays. You should be glad that we don't have bloody holidays anymore. But it was he's drilling into them, you need blood to cover you, to protect you, to be your salvation. It's not merely a matter of God. It's not so the, what they're learning is it's not based on their inherent goodness, but not you being good enough, not not you merit meriting my favor by keep trying to keep my laws. And it's also not me just letting you off the hook. It's not merely a matter of God just accepting them as they are. It's by the bloody sacrifice that he provides. That Israel would be free to be God's people was grounded in God's promise, the covenant he made with Abraham. And the way that he worked that out was his provision of the way for a sinful people to belong to a holy God was by the death of a substitute, the blood of a lamb. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, some people deny that God requires blood in order to forgive sins and accept, and accept people. They, they find it offensive. They say, that's, you're making him out to be like a bloodthirsty, demanding God who, just, who, who demands to be appeased by, by shedding blood. Um, that's, we hate that, that kind of idea of God. Uh, for them, they think well, we, we're more enlightened now and we get that God is just able to um, forgive and forget. God just lets us off the hook out because he loves us and he doesn't require anything else. Just He just loves us and he just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget everything that you've ever done and not worry, so no worries. Is that what the Bible teaches? Sherry says no. We'll see if she's right. In Genesis chapter 2, God said to the first people, our first parents, and yes, you can blame it on your first parents, Adam and Eve, that if they disobeyed him, they would surely die. In other words, the consequences for sin is death. So what they do? They did what your kids do. When you tell them not to do something, they do it. And they brought sin and death upon the human race. So every person ever born is 
spiritually dead, meaning they're alienated from God, and they're bent away from God in their hearts. That's what it is to be dead. And eventually you die physically. So you're, you're alienated from God, you're against him in your heart, and then you die physically. So for God to forgive us only because he loves us and just take, taking away the death penalty would not be just. Because he said this is going to be the penalty, and if he just drops it, then that's not just. And you just have love without justice. And that doesn't make for a good universe. So for God to require the death of the guilty or else a substitute sacrifice is not because he's a capricious, bloodthirsty God who takes pleasure in making the guilty suffer. It's not who he is. It is because, it is because he loves us that he made a way that he could justly forgive us. It's out of his love for us that he, he, he made a way that dealt with both love and justice. Therefore, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. How? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, so yes, God did forgive us because he loved us. But the way he, he accomplished that was the way he forget, forgave us of our sins and set us free from the eternal death penalty was not just by dropping the penalty, but by sending his son to be the propitiation, that is the atoning sacrifice, the one who satisfied God's just judgment against our sin. He was the, 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 the wrath absorber, the justice taker. He, he bore our sins in himself. That's what, the, what it means. He was the propitiation. He satisfied God for our sins. God did not... <clears throat> um, there, there was a... Um, a clip from a sermon being passed around on Facebook where uh, somebody was teaching this very text, John 4, 1 John 4.10, and they were saying that what this is is God broke his own law because of his love for us. It actually teaches just the opposite. It doesn't teach that God broke his own law. It teaches that God fulfilled his law for us because we couldn't do it. He provided the way that his law could be fulfilled. So he didn't just break his law for us. He fulfilled it for us. So that's... That's what this text is saying. Some people say for God to punish our sins and pour out his judgment against, our, uh, against his own son, they call it divine child abuse. They say that's, that's horrible that God would, would, would punish his own son for us. That's, I, people, some people just absolutely reject the, the, uh, the concept of a substitutionary death for us by God's son because that's like divine child abuse. So what's up with that? Well, God, Jesus did this in loving agreement with the Father. This isn't divine child abuse. So we see this in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. This is Jesus saying, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So I'm doing this of my own will, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus dying for our sins in our place, his taking our judgment isn't divine child abuse. It is out of God's everlasting love for us that the Father and Son planned this way of freeing us from our sin from the foundation of the world. 
It was their design all along, out of love for us and out of love for each other. The Father and the Son, in the love agreement, decided to do this. So this isn't God just cruelly punishing his son. It's, it was from the foundation of the world they planned to do this. The closest human example I can think of to this is, is um, a father aware that his son is going as a missionary to um, a people that are hostile. And in serving them as a missionary, bringing the gospel to them, he, he gets killed. The father doesn't delight in the suffering of his, and death of his son in itself, but he loves his son's obedience to Christ and his willingness to lay down his life for the cause of the gospel, for the eternal good of others. And he knows the son will live again. So it's that kind of thing. It's like you don't delight in the suffering of, of course, especially your own children, but if they are serving a good cause and they lose their life because we live in a fallen world and you have hope in Christ, then you, you're not, it's not in vain and it's not worthless and it's not a cruel thing. In verses 14 to 20, then, we read further about the Passover. Verses 14 to 20 in in Exodus 12. This day shall be for you a, a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought you your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no work, no leaven is to be found in your house, in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Before they've actually been delivered, God is telling them this feast will be a memorial forever. He is promising them they will be delivered. The Passover will be the only one that they will experience. This Passover, this first Passover, is the only one they will actually experience the events of the Passover. Every Passover from this time forward will be a memorial of this Passover. So it is foundational to their identity as a people and to Yahweh's identity as, as their deliverer. So what's the symbolism of the unleavened bread? Why is that such a big deal? Why, why do you have to eat crackers? Why couldn't you just have white fluffy bread? Well, we already saw that that part of the symbolism is they're in a hurry, so they don't have time to for the bread to rise with yeast or leaven in it. So um, that's God wanted them to always remember that. In fact, in, later in Deuteronomy, Moses calls it the, the bread of affliction. He says, it's the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. So remember that always, that you had to, in a, in a big hurry, you had to get out of Egypt. 
Throughout the rest of their history, Israel is to remember that they were in affliction in Egypt and they came out in a hurry. Egypt was not their comfortable home. It wasn't a place for them to think, hey, maybe I'll retire back in Egypt. No. And God decisively delivered them from Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was so that they would remember that God completely delivered them. He completely um, saved them out of Egypt. He made a decisive separation from, for them from Egypt to God and as his people. It is so important that they grasp this, that, they complete, that they're completely free from Egypt and are holy God's people, that they begin and end the week with the holy assembly. So they, they start with worship, they end with worship, and they eat unleavened bread for seven days. So they, they make sure at least a week a year you're eating unleavened bread to always remember you, that you're, you're done with Egypt. You don't ever go back to Egypt. In fact, if you do eat unleavened bread during that time, you'll be cut off from your people. So that, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that the people themselves say, hey, you're out of here if you, because I saw you eating crackers. But he doesn't necessarily say that. It just says they will be cut off. So it could mean that God starts withdrawing his blessing from them, and it becomes very obvious that this person is, is not being blessed with the covenant blessings of Israel. Whatever the case is, God says you don't belong as you're, you're, you're not any longer under the covenant if you eat unleavened bread. So that's how important it was to God that they get that. Does the Feast of Unleavened Bread have any relevance for us today? I mean, what do you do you think about Feast of Unleavened Bread? Hey, I wonder what the unle- what's going on with Unleavened Bread today. Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes is rebuking them for tolerating sexual immorality in the church. In fact, they, they even boasted about it. Say, hey, we're so free, we're so liberated, we, we don't mind this incestuous relationship going on in the church. And Paul says... Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8, he goes on and he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really are unleavened. So he's obviously making symbolic use of it here. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread follows immediately after the Passover. And the church uh, is is, um, now in the process of celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread in in a sense, which should be characterized by moral purity. So Christ's sacrifice, Christ's Passover lamb, and our unleavened bread is we're living in, in purity. It's not just mere morality. It's it's he's Paul is saying they should give it, he's saying to them the basis for their morality is twofold. Christ's death has atoned for their sin, and therefore in Christ the people are already a new batch without yeast. They're they're an unleavened batch. That's who you are. They are to act like what they are, in which is not the result of their own efforts, but the result of Christ's efforts. So because of what Christ has done for you, you live like you're, you're freed from sin. Don't, don't tolerate it. Don't celebrate it. Don't make excuses for it. You're unleavened. So be that. Live that way. So as God has decisively and completely separated Israel from Egypt, 
So in Christ, we have been decisively separated from being conformed to the godless ways of this world. And so we need to see ourselves that way. As Paul writes elsewhere, don't be conformed to this world. You're, you've been set free from that by God's mercy. It's not, it's not by your own bootstraps become a better person. It's because Christ has become the sacrifice for you and because he's, he's liberated you from your sin and he's given you, new, given you new life. Live that way and just have that identity drilled into your heart. And that's, that's why we, we frequently, on our own and in groups, and in large groups and small groups, we take the Lord's Supper together and we, we get in his word together because we need to have our minds con- continually renewed in terms of our identity in Christ as unleavened people because that's what he's made us. That's who we are. We need to really believe that. We need to really be convinced that that's what we are. Otherwise, we, we default back to, the way the, to our natural state. Well, the first 20 verses have been all about God instructing Moses. Now Moses instructs the people. In verses 21 to 23, Moses calls all the elders of Israel and says to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the, the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you should go out of the door of his house until the the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your, your houses to strike you. So don't go outside, see what's going on. You might die. You show your faith in the Lord's way of deliverance from this judgment of death. The Lord will pass over you and won't allow the destroyer to destroy you. So you're all wondering, who's the destroyer? Well, he doesn't really say specifically, but a lot of people think it's the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is God manifesting himself in an angelic form, as he did in the burning bush. So it says, when you read the story of the burning bush back in chapter 3, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to, to Moses in the burning bush. And then it's, from that point forward, it kept referring to him as the Lord. So the Lord said the Lord was this. So it could be angel of the Lord. It's, it's God himself in, in the Old Testament before Christ came, uh, appearing that way. Or it could be an angel that's, whose job it is to do that. It doesn't make a huge difference, but that's what it is. It's the, the one who's assigned to, to take the lives of the Egyptians. And then in verses 24 to 28, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you, for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's, pa- of the Lord's pa- Passover. For he passed over the, the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our, our houses. And the people bowed their, their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and, and Aaron. So they did. Just as the Lord had commanded the people of Israel through Moses to observe the Passover forever, so Jesus commands us to observe the Lord's Supper, the communion in remembrance of him.
for all of the Old Testament rituals. So it's, they had tons of rituals under the Old Covenant. For Jesus to, to, to whittle it down to two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, means it's this is very important for us. This last meal with Jesus' disciples must be seen in the light of his death and resurrection, which followed immediately, just as the Exodus followed the Passover meal. So you have Passover and Exodus. You have Jesus' death and resurrection and our Exodus out of sin and death. There's no lamb in the Lord's Supper, so we don't, we're not serving lamb today because the lamb has been sacrificed already. There's no, no more need for the lamb in terms of looking forward to it. He's already come. It's in Christ. So he just gives us his bread, which is his body, and the cup, which is his blood. Now, <clears throat> now that the Passover lamb has come, a new meal with new elements is in order. So we, we read this text earlier in Luke 22. And we'll just look at part of what was read. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So there's a fulfillment coming. There's, a, there's a, a, an ultimate meal coming an ultimate banquet, future as well. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Passover was once a year for the Jews, for Israel. We celebrate the Lord's table more, fre- more frequently than that. So God didn't say, you've got to acknowledge the Holy Week. It's okay to acknowledge Holy Week to celebrate Easter, to celebrate Good Friday. But, but we're not mandated to do that the way that they were. We, we continually tell ourselves the gospel through taking the Lord's Supper together and verbalizing the gospel. So it's constantly in our midst. It's, we, we don't just have a, like a dedicated time for it. It's, it's where we live all the time, gospel-centered. It is a visual gospel lesson and spiritual communion with our Deliverer and frees us to be his people. In fact, so, this is kind of a sobering verse. I don't have this up on the screen, but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says if you you take the Lord's table, the elements in an unworthy manner, you can get sick and die. Yeah, it says if if you don't discern what's going on in your heart, you eat and drink in judgment to yourself. That's why many of you are, are weak and ill, and some have died. So it's not like just a, oh, yeah, there's cracker juice. It's you're meeting with Jesus. So it's very good to make sure that you're keeping up to date 
confessing sin and in your relationship to Jesus. It's very grace-filled, but but we are given this warning, so we need to know it. It's very serious. The, this last meal points not only to the current, our current living under the gospel, but the future meal to come. So we've got a banquet coming that's going to end all banquets in the kingdom. We take it often because we keep rehearsing the gospel and what is repeated becomes familiar and becomes a part of us. So um, most of us probably remember commercial jingles a lot more than we know Bible, Bible verses. So what we repeat helps us to get it down. So we, we take it frequently together. Just as they worshipped, we worship. So in um, Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, next slide. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So just as it says, Israel's worship, we, we, we rejoice. We have been justified by his blood. And the, the worship is going on in heaven, so we see that in Revelation. Next slide. They sang a new song, so they're, they're worshiping the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So as we take these elements, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and prepare our hearts for, for receiving the Lord's table. Um, but do search your hearts and confess your sins to, to Christ. And take these elements in celebration and in worship of, of the greatness of his salvation that God has so graciously provided for us redemption through the body and blood of his son. His body, he took on a human body so that he could die in our place. And he, he shed his blood to pay the price for our sins. So I'll pray and, and we'll have uh, music. And I encourage you to take the elements with, with uh, others, with your family or friends as well. So can do that, enjoy it as we share it as the body of Christ. Father, we thank you for giving us the amazing gift of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that he was the perfect sacrifice. We, we don't have any doubt that he has completely paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Your word tells us that we're, we're made right with you by his blood. 
and that we don't earn that by trying to make ourselves better people. We do thank you that it does free us to become better people, a more obedient people, a people who reflect his glory and his goodness. But we thank you that because you loved us, you sent your son to, to, to pay the, the sacrificial price as our substitute to forgive us of our sins. Thank you that your plan is infallible and you rescue us from death and sin and give us life as your redeemed people. May we do this, Father, may we express gratitude to you. May we do this in a heart of worship and awe at your greatness. The Lamb who was slain, worthy of all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.